Hello, I am Michael Penny. And I'm Sylvia Penny, and I'll be reading some of the scripture references. And I'm William Henry. In a previous podcast, we suggested that when Jesus told the disciples in Luke chapter 9 that he was going to be rejected and he was going to be killed by the Jewish leaders, that was the first time that he'd actually mentioned his death to them. Yeah, and the disciples were, understandably, really shocked at that news. They were, but the Lord wasn't finished yet with them. He's had some really serious lessons to teach them. If they were going to be his true followers, then they needed to be prepared for sacrifice. He says this in Luke chapter 9, verses 23 to 25. Then he said to them all, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world? and yet lose or forfeit his very self. Yeah. Now, isn't that really about self-denial? Yeah, it is. Um, these, the Lord's people really have to deny themselves and take up their cross daily. And I guess that's the ultimate in self-denial, isn't it? Yes, yes. Now, Jesus was going to have to take up a literal cross, whereas we may not be called to actual martyrdom, you know. Yeah, but the disciples Jesus was speaking to were virtually all eventually martyred, weren't they? Yeah, that's true. Yes, yes. So what do you think taking up the cross means if it's not martyrdom? Well, I think you really hit the nail on the head when you said it was the ultimate in self-denial. It means we have to completely abandon our natural tendencies to put ourselves first and to live only for ourselves. We really have to put the Lord first in everything. The cross was an instrument of execution, so Christ's followers must die to a way of life that tries to get the best for ourselves. Yeah, John says something similar to that in his first epistle, doesn't he? Yeah, I think so. I think it's in uh, 1 John three sixteen to 17, where we read this. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? So there the example John gives of laying down our lives for one another is meeting somebody's material needs. We lay down our lives, not once and for all, but in our daily interactions with one another. Yeah, that's true. That's what Jesus means when he tells the people here in Luke to take up our cross daily. Exactly. But then immediately after this, we have the incident of the Lord's transfiguration in Luke 9. Luke says it happened about eight days after the discussion about taking up the cross. Jesus took Peter, James and John up a mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the Lord's appearance became dazzlingly bright. This is how Luke describes it. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. That's in Luke 9, verse 30. His departure? That's a, a kind of strange word for them to use. What did they mean by that? Why a departure? Well, it, it must mean his death. That is, he was going to depart from this life 
And Peter actually uses the same term about his death in 2 Peter 1, verses 13 to 15. I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body, because I know that I will soon put it aside, as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. But what an experience it must have been for the disciples to see a vision of the Lord's glory. And not only that, but to hear the voice of God confirming once again that Jesus was his son. It must have been completely overwhelming for them. Oh, yes, it was. Peter, as usual, was the only one who said something. Peter said to him, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He didn't know what he was saying. And that's in Luke 9, 33. Yeah, mind you, I don't know what I would have said either. So what would you have said, Mike? Oh, gosh, no idea. Nothing sensible, I'm sure. Okay, but why do you think it was Moses and Elijah who came to talk with him? Well, I think that Moses represents the law and Elijah represents the prophets. And remember that the Lord's ministry emerged from the Old Testament and two of its major divisions were the law and the prophets. Anyway, Luke 9.30, which Sylvia read a moment ago, describes the Lord's death as something that he was going to bring to fulfillment. So that shows the link with the past. The transfiguration is an amazing experience, but Luke says that the three disciples kept the experience to themselves and didn't tell anybody. Yeah, that's right. Matthew's version of the transfiguration in Matthew 17 says that the disciples were terrified. Matthew also says that Jesus told them not to tell anyone about it until he had been raised from the dead. So by keeping quiet, they were obeying his instructions. Yeah, but then when they came back down the mountain in the morning, they were brought down to earth with a bump, weren't they? Oh, yeah. They went from that wonderful experience of seeing the transfigured to the rather depressing situation of hearing about the other nine disciples' failure to cast out a demon from a boy. In fact, there was a crowd of people there, and the disciples were arguing with the teachers of the law. So the boy's father ignored them and and just brought the boy to Jesus. Even while the boy was coming, the demon threw him to the ground in a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the evil spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. That's in Luke 9, 42 to 43. It's strange, isn't it, that the disciples couldn't cast out this demon because all 12 of them had just been away on a preaching tour around the villages. And Jesus had actually specifically given them the power to drive out all demons, Luke 9 verse 1 says. Yeah, yeah, it is a little odd, isn't it? But this seems to have been a particularly powerful demon. In Matthew and Mark's version of the incident, the disciples asked the Lord why they had been unable to cast out the demon. And this is what he said to them. This kind can only come out by prayer. That's in Mark 9.29, and in Matthew 17, verses 20 to 21, Jesus tells them, It's because you have so little faith. I tell you the truth. If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, 
move from here to there and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. So we see that the disciples really had such a huge amount to learn, hadn't they? Their lack of faith kept showing itself very frequently. And quite often they couldn't understand what Jesus was saying to them. Oh, yes, that's true. Now, anyway, let's move on. Immediately after healing the boy, while everyone was marveling at, at all that Jesus was doing and praising him to the skies, Jesus turned to his disciples and told them to listen carefully to what he was about to tell them. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. But they did not understand what this meant. It was hidden from them so that they were unable to grasp it and they were afraid to ask him about it. That's in Luke 9 verses 44 to 45. So what he said was hidden from them so that they saw that that was the reason, I think, why they didn't understand. But it doesn't actually say who hid it from them. Was it God who hid it from them or Satan or was it just their own dullness? That's hard to say, Will. I, I have all, well, I think I've always thought that it was God who hid it from them. He was wanting to protect them or shield them at that time. You know, it is much easier for us looking back to the cross and the resurrection, and we may wonder why the disciples couldn't understand what Jesus was saying to them. But it must have been very difficult for them to wrestle with it all. Their master, who had been teaching about the coming kingdom he was going to set up, and now he was also telling them that he was going to be betrayed, arrested, and put to death. How could that be? Yeah, and as far as the resurrection was concerned, they had no experience of anyone rising out from among the dead, which is what he said. Okay, they'd seen Lazarus, they'd seen the widow's son, and they'd seen Jairus' daughter, but they were brought back to normal human life. They would die again. They'd never seen anyone emerge in resurrection life from the dead. Yes, that's right. Anyway, after the transfiguration, when Jesus told them they were not to speak of their experience until after the resurrection, Mark 9 verse 10 says the following. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant, or, as Young's literal translation puts it, the thing they kept to themselves, questioning together what the rising out of the dead is. So then I suppose we can sympathize with them a bit. But what's sad, I think, though, is that although they didn't understand it, it says they were afraid to ask Jesus about it. Why were they afraid? Um, I'm not sure. You know, after all, they, they were so used to seeing things happening that were so far removed from their normal lives. You know, Jesus's miracles, the visions they had, the extraordinary teachings Jesus gave. But rising out from among the dead, well, well, they just shook their heads and carried on, actually. Yeah, well, they certainly hadn't got their heads around a lot of what Jesus was teaching them. The very next incident in Luke chapter 9 shows this. An argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. That's in verse 46. Yeah, and this is not the only place that it happened. Luke 22 shows them you know, after the Lord's Supper, just before Gethsemane, they were still arguing about who would be the greatest. 
Yeah, you can just imagine the argument here, can't you? The nine disciples had failed to cast out the demon from the boy, and Peter, James, and John had been up the mountain with Jesus. You can just picture the three of them saying to the others, now, of course, if we had been there, it would have been very different. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But the failure to cast out the demon must have really been going round and round in their minds because John immediately comes back to the subject as Luke 9.49 makes clear. Master, said John, we saw a man driving out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he's not one of us. God, that's the sort of thing you still hear in our churches, isn't it? He can't be right because he's not one of us. Yeah, that's what they said, but that wasn't the Lord's attitude. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for whoever is not against you is for you. Luke 9, verse 50. Yeah, that's right. That's true. But Jesus also wanted to reinforce his teaching on what it meant to be the greatest. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and had him stand beside them. But then he said to them, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me, welcomes the one who sent me. For he who is least among you all, he is the greatest. And that's in Luke 9, verses 47 to 48. Yes, he taught that over and over again, didn't he? For example, when he washed the disciples' feet in, in John chapter 13, that was to get the same point across. Yeah, I agree with you there. But Luke then immediately takes us to a place where Jesus was not welcomed. He was on the road to Jerusalem and he was approaching a Samaritan village. And he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them, and they went to another village. That's in Luke 9, verses 52 to 55. For goodness sake, James and John, what a pair. No wonder Jesus nicknamed them the sons of thunder. (laughs) Yeah, right pair they were, weren't they at times? Never mind. They still hadn't grasped what Jesus was trying to teach them, the kind of people he wanted them to be. Remember what he said on the Sermon on the Mount and in the Sermon on the Plain about loving their enemies and not judging people? Oh, yes. And even in this chapter in Luke, we've already talked about it, haven't we? What he said about accepting suffering, picking up the cross daily, dying to themselves and following him. It's a really hard lesson, actually. Yes, it certainly is. It is for us as well. Anyway. Straight away, we have encounters between Jesus and three men, all of whom wanted to be his disciples. But he warns them of the cost of doing so. And the fact that we don't hear about them again would suggest that they had backed off. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. That's in Luke 9, verses 57 to 58. Well, of the other two men, one wanted to bury his father first, and the other wanted to say goodbye to his family, which doesn't seem unreasonable. 
However, they were standard excuses at that time for not doing something or not giving an immediate answer. As I may say today, oh, I will have to check with my wife about that. Yeah, or, or you might say, I'll, I'll need to sleep on that. Well, don't you need to check things with your wife, Will? Oh, no comment. She might be listening. <laughs> I hope so. Anyway, <laughs> so then. Jesus saw their answers as hollow excuses for not wanting to follow immediately. He made a really strong comment at the end of that discussion. Jesus replied, no one who puts his hand to the plough and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. And that's Luke 9 verse 62. No regrets, eh? The Lord really wants his followers to be fully committed. If we're going to deny ourselves and take up our cross on a daily basis, then there can't be any room for half-heartedness. The Lord wanted people to think very carefully what they were doing before they agreed to follow him. Yes, but by this time, hadn't Jesus got a lot more committed followers, not just the 12? Yes, he had, because at the start of chapter 10, we read of another missionary tour, and this time he sent out not just the 12, but 72. And, and Luke says that Jesus sent them out two by two, to every town and place where he was going to be visiting. So this is part of his long journey to Jerusalem. And the instructions he gave them are very similar to the ones he had given to the 12 in Luke 9. When they went out on their mission, they were to take no extra clothes or provisions with them. They were to stay in one house in each village. If they were not welcomed in any village or house, they were to shake the dust off their feet as a testimony against the people there. Yes, and their message was the same. They were to heal the sick and cast out demons and preach the kingdom. Yeah, but the Lord's instructions to the 72 are more detailed. They include warnings to those who didn't believe. And we can read about them in Luke 10, verses 10 to 12. When you enter a town and are not welcomed, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that sticks to our feet, we wipe off against you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God is near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than that for that town. So the coming of the kingdom would mean judgment on those who didn't believe. Oh, exactly. Jesus spelled out that with the coming kingdom, judgment was coming also. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And that's in Luke 10, verses 13 to 14. Yeah, well, the mission seems to have been a great success, hasn't it? Luke says this in verse 17. The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. Yes, the disciples were obviously over the moon, weren't they? No doubt the failure of the nine disciples to cast out the demon from the boy had really rattled them. But now they were experiencing success. It was great. Yeah, that's true. But Jesus reminded them that it was he who had given them the power to overcome the enemy and to trample on snakes and scorpions. They had to keep their feet on the ground and have their priorities right. However. Do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. 
That's in Luke 10, verse 20. But Jesus was obviously delighted at what had happened, and he gives thanks to the Father there. This is one of the places, I think, where we really see the Lord's delight at the way the Father had been working in the hearts and minds of Jesus' followers. At that time, Jesus, full of joy, through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this was your good pleasure. That's Luke 10, verse 21. You know, it's often the way the Lord works, isn't it? He chooses to work not through the intellectuals of the world, but through ordinary people. As Jesus says here in Luke 10, no one can know who the Father is except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Mm. Yeah, um, Paul also talks about how God often chooses to use ordinary people, doesn't he? He says God does so, so that no one can boast. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many of you were from noble, noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong, so that no one may boast before him. It's 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 29. That's something I think we have to remember, that any understanding of the Lord and his ways that we may have been given has come to us from the Holy Spirit. It's not by our own intellect. And Paul goes on to make this point, in fact, in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14. The man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Yeah, that's right. Anyway, back to Luke 10. Jesus rounds off with a private word to the twelve. Then he turned to his disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. That's in Luke 10, verses 23 to 24. Yeah, it must have been fantastic for the disciples. I'd love to have been there. It would have been a tremendous privilege for them to spend these three years with the Lord, seeing him in action, hearing his teaching, and just, well, just spending time with him. Yeah. Uh, sometimes when you read the Old Testament prophets, you know, you get the feeling that they didn't really have the full picture. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Like they, they were seemed to be unable to distinguish clearly between the first and second comings of Christ. So the disciples were terribly privileged to see many of the prophecies actually coming true in front of their very eyes. But Jesus still had other things to teach the disciples. At the start of chapter 11, he begins to talk to them about prayer. And this is where he gives them the Lord's Prayer. Oh, yeah. And we get that Lord's Prayer in Matthew as well, don't we, in chapter 6, I think it is? Yeah, but that was a different occasion. That was during the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus was encouraging the disciples there not to pray long-winded prayers for show the way the hypocrites did. Instead, he gave them the Lord's Prayer as an alternative. In Luke, which we're looking at just now, the prayer is much shorter, and it's given by the Lord to the disciples after they had asked him to teach them to pray. But the really important lesson that Jesus was trying to get across to them 
was that they should trust in God and be confident that he would answer their prayers in line with his will. Yes, he tells a story of a man who had an unexpected guest and he had no food for him. So he went to a friend's house late at night to ask for a loaf. And his friend, who was tucked up in bed, initially refused to get up, but eventually he did. And Jesus concluded that by saying this. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him the bread because he's his friend, yet because of the man's boldness, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. And that's in Luke 11, verse 8. Yeah, but we must realize that Jesus was not suggesting that God was reluctant to answer the disciples' prayers. This, you know, this is one of Jesus's how much more stories. If even this reluctant friend was eventually persuaded to get out of bed to help, how much more would God answer the disciples' prayer? Yes, he really wants the disciples to be bold in their prayers, doesn't he? See what he says next. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks, the door will be opened. And that's in Luke 11, verses 9 to 10. So do you think Jesus is saying that the disciples will receive anything they ask for? That's what it looks like. No, no, I don't think he means that. What he says next really makes it clear, and it really brings out the how much more aspect. Which of your fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And that's in Luke 11, verses 11 to 13. Well, that sounds pretty comprehensive to me. Yes, it does. But look at what the Lord said. Even flawed fathers know how to give good gifts to their children. No father would give a child a snake if he had asked for a fish. But what if the child asked for a snake, thinking it was a fish? After all, many snakes in this life don't look like snakes to us. But God in his wisdom can see them for what they are. So just like any good human father... He would only give gifts to his children. He would not give us a gift that would not be to our best long-term interests, even if we asked him for it. Yeah, yeah, I guess that must be true. What may appear good to us in the short term could turn out to be very bad in the long term. Oh, yes, yes, definitely. But during Luke 11, notice the promised gift is the Holy Spirit which was really the disciples' greatest need going forward. In a similar conversation with the disciples in Matthew 7, as part of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus promised that the Father will give good gifts to those who ask him. But that was much earlier in Jesus' ministry. What the disciples needed most now, what they needed most was the Holy Spirit. Okay, but Jesus was not only teaching the disciples, of course, he was also teaching the crowds and he was warning them, especially their leaders, about the dangers of rejecting him. We get this teaching in Luke chapters 12 to 14 and we'll have a look at these in the next podcast. So thanks very much for listening.